Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In her new book, The Human Age, The World Shaped by Us, Diane Ackerman writes that our relationship with nature has changed radically, irreversibly, but by no means all for the bad. Our new epoch is laced with invention. Our mistakes are legion, but our talent is immeasurable. Diane Ackerman appeared recently at the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival in Salt Lake City confronts the fact that the human race is now the single dominant force of change on the planet. She says humans have subdued 75% of the land surface, concocted a wizardry of industrial and medical marvels, strung lights crawl across the darkness. And we now collect DNA of vanishing species in a frozen ark, equip orangutans with uh, iPads, create wearable technologies and synthetic species that might one day outsmart us. But she says uh, that uh, she's seeking to help us understand this new reality, introducing us to many of the people and ideas now creating perhaps saving our future. Dan Ackerman is author also of A Natural History of the Senses, 100 Names of Love, The Zookeeper's Wife, many other books, and joins us on the line for the program. Diane Ackerman, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. We appreciate you being with us today. Uh, I wonder if we could start uh, much interesting in the book. Um, and, and I think the, the tone is, is quite optimistic. I want to ask you about that. I wonder if you could start where you start in the book, and that is a chapter uh, cleverly titled Apps for Apes. You talk about a, an orangutan named uh, Booty, I believe, who was given yeah. <laughs> a, an, an iPad. Uh, tell the story, if you would, please. Mm. Yes, this is a seven-year-old orangutan at the, at the Toronto Zoo, and he's part of the Apps for Apes project. Orangutan Outreach is an organization that is trying to save the Indonesian rainforest uh, to protect the very few remaining and very endangered orangutans. And so those that happen to be in zoos um, are very intelligent, we know. They have brains of like human three- or four-year-olds, and we want to make sure they have enough enrichment mentally. And so they've been given iPads. The one I met knows how to Skype. That's more than I can do. <laughs> and um, they can play piano on them. They can do different kinds of things. They can watch movies. Uh, but really, one of the messages for the zoo goers is that, of course, we are great apes with iPads also. And and one of the, the questions, you have a series of questions uh, early in the book uh, as, as to why you wrote the book. One of the one of the key ones I thought was uh, in the future. You you imagine a future. I don't know, fifty years out or so. Will adolescents still be asking, "Who am I?" or "What am I?" And this is in the context of you know all of the innovations that are happening. Yes, I really think so. We're right in the middle of a lot of revolutions that are taking place all at once, and an important one is the change in how we regard what is natural for human beings. We've added a lot of extensions to our senses. Um, we just think it's natural now for human beings to be able to fly through the sky at 500 miles an hour. That's just something humans do. Or to be able to do great computations at speed. Or to be able to see something across a valley. Uh, or to put on glasses or contact lenses, and be able to remove a tiny splinter very easily, um, or to reach into somebody's heart and repair it. We have greatly altered our notion of what is natural, and this has been coming about at a faster and faster pace 
um, only just a couple of decades ago, there were films being made called things like Cyborg, and that was considered really scary. The cyborgs were going to come and get us. But many of us are cyborgs walking around now. We have titanium screws in our feet. We have pacemakers. We have all kinds of synthetic things that are part of our bodies. And again, it doesn't make us feel like we're not human. We're altering our relationship with every facet of nature. And we need to be very much aware of it as we go forward. Yeah, parenthetically, uh, that, that's the word I think of when when I encounter someone with a small earpiece and they're talking apparently to no one, and then I realize, oh, you're, you're talking <laughs> on the phone, I think, oh, you're a cyborg. Um, but yes. <laughs> that's just an aside. Um, so, and you have a chapter titled, Is, is Nature Natural Anymore? That's, that's, a, the that's a really good question that you might well ask, because when I look outside my window and I see the magnolia tree, Uh, and the um, sycamore tree, and I see the squirrels running around and the roses. I think of that as nature. But none of those items is natural to this area. Uh, They are all invasive species that we have brought in because we have been deciding just over the last, well, pretty much 200 years, uh, which plants and animals we want to share the planet with us. Some we consider pests. Some we consider friends, some we consider pets, uh, some we consider, in quotes, natural, but we have touched every aspect of nature. When I was um, even a graduate student, we still, environmentalists, were still saying nature is pristine, it's a paradise. It's completely separate from us. We understand now, very recently, that we have generally vexed and bothered every plant, every animal on every continent and in every ocean. There is no part of nature that we have not left our fingerprints on. So it is no longer a question of whether nature is pristine or other. It isn't. It is still natural, but it is not other. We are nature, and we are affecting every element of nature. And uh, we just need to decide uh, more or less how, what parts we are going to have that are going to be wild and uh, relatively, and which parts not. So even our national parks and our great sanctuaries, uh, climate change has greatly affected the migration patterns of animals, uh, the survival of different animals and plants. And we need to decide to have areas that we designate as wilderness, including the wonderful thing that the president did, which was to declare uh, an underwater ocean park, which will be off limits. Um, We need to do things like that, and then other areas we need to manage. So we have paved over uh, a lot of natural habitat for animals, for instance, with our cities, and we need to be creating more wildlife corridors so that they can find their ways around. And people are doing this all over the planet, very successfully. And this is a central question, isn't it? That's why you treat it centrally in the book. What uh, uh, this this separation, I think, that uh, probably still persists with a lot of us that that we are separate from from nature. You're you're trying to hit at that, I, I think. Yes, we're not in any way separate. In fact. In just the past 
oh, 10 years, it's become apparent that we have more uh, DNA, 10 times more, from bacteria as part of our body than human DNA. We are constantly absorbing nature and other people. Not a great thought if you don't even want to carry the memory of a bad relationship mm-hmm. with you. Yeah. But um, we are constantly in relation. We only live in relation to the rest of the natural world. And uh, so we're learning that we are individuals are really super organisms. And as then we are super organisms who are part of the super organism of the species, which is part of the super organism of the planet. We're starting to much better understand who and what we are and how we relate to the rest of nature. Hmm. One example I think you give, uh, in the year 1000, an estimated 300 million humans, their domesticated animals, made up 2% of mammal biomass. And then with uh, exponential population growth, ensuing growth in mechanization of food production, humans and domesticated animals account for 90% now of mammal biomass. That's amazing, isn't it? Uh, I think so. And um, some, of, some of this, of course, is factory farming, which is not necessarily a good thing. We have gotten rid of a lot of the very important genes uh, and biodiversity that we need and we've ripped up a lot of forests, and we need the trees to help with climate change. There are great um, climate change initiatives taking place all over the world um, that have to do with reforesting some of the land that we've deforested. Um, But fortunately, there is a doomsday vault in England called the Frozen Ark, which has been going around and collecting up the DNA of all of the animals on the planet against the day when we may need some of it, either to de-extinct, as the expression goes, some animals, or to enrich the gene pool of animals. And that, that latter one, certainly would be helpful. Yeah, yeah, and I think you used the word, um, I don't know, tinkers, we're restless as a, as a species, um, We're revved up meddling busybody. We always have been. (laughs) That has always been our MO. And we've survived because we've been that way. We've had the, if you like, the impulsiveness um, and sometimes recklessness to go out and explore and the curiosity to to take chances and all kinds of things like that. And so we have survived. We didn't, I mean, we now cover the entire planet, but we began in a very small area, and we have become the most flexible, the most adaptable species, and that's why we've survived, and that's also part of the reason that I think that um, we really need to stay optimistic about climate change. We need to be realists. It is possible to be both a realist and an optimist, so I am a realist. Climate change is absolutely real. It's urgent. It's something we need to take care of immediately. We need to start curbing it. But I'm also an optimist. Uh, The United Nations panel on climate change has said that it is technologically possible for us to curb climate change to the extent where we can have the kind of uh, future that we need for ourselves and for the planet. Whether or not it is politically feasible 
is another question, and that is up to us. And so the climate march that just took place in New York, uh, there were 400,000 people at that, and there were uh, other marches all over the world. These are an indication that people, especially young people, really want their voices to be heard. And after the recent climate summit, there were a number of really important decisions and pledges, not just that um, nations made, but that industries made, uh, all different kinds of companies, uh, uh, pledges by um, cooperatives, you know, um, coalitions of nation, industry, and um, indigenous peoples to work on uh, different climate change efforts. These are the things that are taking place. And if you go online, you can find these climate success stories. And we need to take part in them. Hmm. There, there's been some uh, a bit of pushback. I've read you know, a couple of reviews of your of your book, uh, you know, praising the book overall, but saying that uh, Ms. Ackerman is is a little too optimistic, a little too sunny, and we we need to get a little more realistic. Um, and I wonder, and I think you are genuinely optimistic. And I believe you also talked about the need to be optimistic. I wonder if you talked about that. Well, we are we are hit by so much bloom and doom in the media, and. I have heard from students, I'm at Cornell, I've heard from students over the years and other people um, so often saying, but I'm told that there's nothing we can do. We are doomed. Why bother? And we don't want paralysis. You know, that is not going to help with anything. That message is the one that we have been giving for as long as I can remember, and it didn't achieve anything. We need to make it clear that there are real things that people can do if they roll up their sleeves and get busy. Yes, there is some pushback, as you say, and Al Gore has the same kind of pushback because he is also a realist and an optimist. And um, people who are inherently pessimistic and just feel that we are doomed and there's nothing you can do are going to say, why bother? Why be an optimist? But I think the truth is quite the opposite. Um, I have been really researching this and looking at a lot of important things that people have been doing, individuals and countries. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Yes. Um, for, for instance, there's a wonderful uh, mother, teacher, climate activist in Kenya whose name is Caroline Dama, and she has been organizing children in Kenya, um, to plant trees. So in 2013, she supervised the planting of over 100,000 trees at 90 locations around Kenya. Uh, She got schools, faith-based organizations, farmers groups, and she's just working with children to start greening up their world. Uh, The Prime Minister of India recently announced that he was going to transition 400 million people who did not have electricity to solar and, very importantly, going to plant 2 billion trees all along the highways. Now, the trees suck up carbon dioxide and safely store it in the ground. So we need that very, very much. 
And also, that effort will put to work 300,000 people who are out of work. So it will help the economy greatly. And also, it will create wildlife corridors. So it will help nature. And also, it will help people who are uh, commuting to and from the cities to still feel connected to nature. So by the act of planting the trees, you are achieving many different kinds of things. Um, there are people in um, starting solar energy projects, large ones, um, in Barbados, or there's a Buddhist monk who is protecting uh, rainforests. Uh, there are wonderful, wonderful efforts that are taking place. Um, there's a wonderful man named Mohammed Rezwan in Bangladesh, an architect who could make quite a good living. But he decided that he was tired of seeing his country being constantly flooded and his uh, neighbors' lives being destroyed by the increasing effects of global warming, which uh, unfortunately it's melting the the ice in the Himalayas, and then the water comes down, and it is even worse on the floodplains in Bangladesh, which has the largest floodplain in the world. And so he devised the idea of a nonprofit that launches 100 boats in flood season, and the boats are schools, they're hospitals, they're agricultural extensions, they provide energy. The energy is solar, sometimes bicycle-powered, excuse me. And um, this has now reached 90,000 people. Um, he has taught them a new way of farming that they can do in the water. They have essentially recreated floating villages to help adapt to climate change. And he intends to launch another 100 in the coming year, and that will influence another 100,000 people. There are initiatives like this unfolding all over the planet. If you just joined us, we're talking with Diane Ackerman. Uh, she is author, most recently, of The Human Age, The World Shaped by Us, uh, previously A Natural History of the Senses, uh, The Zookeeper's Wife, and many other books. She was recently in Utah for the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival, and we have her for the hour here. You're welcome to join this conversation. Hope that you will. If you have a question or comment, it's 1-800-826-1495 is the number, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us on our email, upraxcess at gmail.com upraxcess at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. We're going to take a brief break, and uh, when we come back, uh, we'll uh, have more examples. Uh, some of these, uh, Nan Ackerman, for this book, uh, talked with many, many interesting people. She says, our species is restless, we're young, we're inventive, we're innovative, and those traits can help us uh, to, uh, to, to have a successful future despite all the, all the problems. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Four Paws Rescue presenting the 14th Annual Moondog Ball Saturday, October 11th at the Logan Golf and Country Club with performances by Shimmering Sands Belly Dance and the B-Boy Federation Urban Dance and Hip Hop. Ticket information at thefourpaws.petfinder.org. 
Many people are downsizing their homes to live a simpler, greener life, but Professor Dumpster's radical living experiment sets a new low bar. Well, it's a standard 10 cubic yard dumpster, which means it's six foot by six foot at the base, and this one's actually quite tall. It's about seven feet. Green lessons from life in a dumpster. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the American Festival Chorus and Orchestra presenting Oz and Beyond, a family pops concert celebrating the 75th anniversary of the film The Wizard of Oz, Friday, October 10th at 7.30 in the Kent Concert Hall. Information at AmericanFestivalChorus.org. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Diane Ackerman. She is author previously of A Natural History of Senses, uh, Zookeeper's Wife, um, also Cultivating Delight, A Natural History of My Garden, and many other books. Her new book is The Human Age, The World Shaped by Us. She was recently in Utah for the Utah Humanities Council Book Festival. We have her, as I mentioned, for the hour. Very pleased to, to have her on. And uh, you're welcome to join the program at 1-800-826-1495. UPRAccess at gmail.com and on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. In her book, she says that our relationship with nature has changed radically, irreversibly, but by no means all for the bad. Don Ackerman, I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about the, the new epoch, uh, which, which some are naming, and it, I think it might become official here in the new fu- future, uh, uh, Anthropocene, the age of man. Yes. Well, human beings have walked the planet for about 200,000 years, but it's really only in the last 200 years that most of the wonders that we associate with everyday life came about. And in the past 20 years, that human saga has really been racing ahead at a mind-boggling pace. And we now have so much dominion over the planet that we've kind of shaken things up We used to be mammals who were adapting to nature. Now we've created a human culture in which we've embedded nature. And so there's a coalition of scientists who believe we need to better reflect that reality by changing the name of the geological era in which we live. It was the Holocene, and they are working on changing it to the Anthropocene, which translates as the human age. Yeah, it's interesting that, uh, for one example... You give our impact is being written in a pretty big way into the fossil record. Well, that's, oh yeah, that seems to be accelerating. That's one of the most interesting things I think. When we think of uh, like the stripes in the rock, the the different layers in the fossil record, we think of fossils. You know, we think of dinosaurs. But the human age, probably, we are not going to leave a, a lot of bones and skeletons behind. You're going to find our residue. And you're going to find a lot of it in the future. Um, things like plastic, the tiny plastic tears, which is the smallest that plastic degrades to, um, and the steel and other metals from our building projects and the aluminum from our cans and brand new forms of matter. I find that absolutely astonishing. We, ha- we live in a universe that is so bountiful, but it is not enough for us. We feel we need to add to the sum of creation with all of these new things. So 
one of the messages, I must say, of my book is climate change is real. Roll up your sleeves and get busy. Don't lose hope, but what a majestic species we are. Keep that in mind. It's very easy to think of ourselves as evil, evil as an entire species, and that's just not true. Hmm. Uh, in your conclusion, uh, I, I love this passage, um, you, uh, you say it's time we acknowledged our personality, not just as individuals but as a species. And you say you once knew a woman who checked into a hotel, <laughs> and it, maybe tell that story and what that says, how you think that applies to us as a species. Well, sometimes you may, yes, go into a motel room and you might not like something about it. Maybe there are no pillows or whatever it is, and you call down. She didn't like the little finials, the little screws at the top of the lampshades, and she had those replaced. Boy, that's finicky. And, um, but it does tell you something about our species, that we, we are constantly uncomfortable with almost everything and busily trying to improve things, change things. We need to understand that um, we are an adolescent species. We've made a mess of things. There's no question about it. We've created a lot of planetary chaos that we didn't mean to, but we did. And we don't pick up after ourselves. But we nonetheless have the um, tenacity and the talent, the imagination, uh, if we put our minds to it, to work together as one species and ensure the kind of health of the planet that we need and also um, lift up the way of life for a lot of the most vulnerable people among us. A number of the UN projects which they're calling climate heroes and green economy and so on, don't just have to do with creating a sustainable future. They are trying in the process to also lift the economy in the, um, just in the developing countries um, that really desperately need it at the same time. The projects are designed to bring in money for the local people and also provide them with the kinds of renewables that will help sustain them and sustain the planet. So you're optimistic about that, that the, 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 the distribution of all this innovation uh, to uh, you know, the least among us, uh, that, that that will happen, that can happen? Of course it can happen. It's entirely up to us. And I am heartened by uh, some of the U.N. efforts that are taking place now. I encourage people to go online and start looking at them. There are quite a few. Um, there are, just as a result of the summit that happened recently, um, there were 73 governments um, that decided that they were going to get together and pledge to work in that way. There are businesses that are doing that, um, not just um, bringing um, ways to save, to help climate change in the areas, but planting uh, trees, for example, of a renewable kind that the locals can then be harvesting and selling and bringing money in from new ways of agriculture to help, especially in areas where there's been flood damage. It is going to fall to the wealthiest nations to look after 
the least wealthy nations. There's no question about this, and it should, because we are the ones who are using most of the resources and are most responsible for climate change. So are we doing enough? Of course not. We can't be complacent about it. Can we do enough? Yes, we can. And one of the ideas that I thought might work well would be a Vista Corps. If you remember Vista, it put uh, people to work right out of high school. I think we should have one that is devoted to the environment. This would be a kind of combination Vista, AmeriCorps sort of thing, but it would be worldwide. And right out of high school, uh, kids would be working together on um, humanitarian projects. Um, I think it would be wonderful for them, and it would be wonderful for um, all different kinds of nations, uh, especially if they were working in the third world. And uh, we have a lot of climate change and humanitarian work to do there. I know uh, investment people, for example, who I always used to think of investment bankers as not especially noble and ethical people, but I know people now who work for companies that only invest in humanitarian projects in the third world. These kinds of changes are really important, and they are happening. We need to know about them. We need to know what's possible. We are talking with Diane Ackerman on the program today, if you just joined us. Her latest book is The Human Age, and uh, we are, have her for the hour. You can uh, interact with her here at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, uh, or you can join us uh, uh, on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, she says that uh, we need to confront the fact that the human race is now the single dominant force of change on the planet. Humans have, for example, subdued 75% of the land surface, and uh, we're potentially creating uh, new species. Uh, she introduces us in her book to many people, uh, scientists and, and activists, who are now creating and perhaps saving our future. She says she is optimistic about our future. Uh, her uh, books include uh, Natural History of the Senses, uh, The Zookeeper's Wife, and, uh, of course, uh, the new book, the, the Human Age, The World Shaped by Us. Don Ackerman, I wonder if you could talk, you talk in the book uh, a little bit about um, not only how we're shaping the world, and, uh, you know, that is, you know, we're, we're shaping it in increasingly uh, more impactful ways, but we, in turn, are being shaped by our own inventions. For example, the the impact on, on kids of all that time on digital devices. Yes. we uh, A lot of us live virtually now, and we experience nature virtually. And uh, eyesight is changing. We're becoming much more short-sighted to a very large degree. It makes sense that we would, instead of being outside, playing outside, kids, and looking maybe at the ground or at your hands and up at the trees and having your eye muscles moving around in different ways, uh, most of the time it is spent playing indoors because, as one young girl said, that's where all the sockets are. <laughs> um, and so the eyes are getting short-sighted. The place in the brain that represents the thumbs is growing larger from texting. Really? Uh, yeah. We, we are very much changing that. Um, we also now know now that the pollution that we live around, um, the 
people who are suffering from famine and poverty. All of these things are being marked on the DNA. It's not just affecting them. It's affecting um, their children and their children's children. It gets passed down for generations, which helps to explain why Holocaust survivors uh, not only can be traumatized themselves, but very often family members are children, grandchildren. It can be tagged in the DNA. And uh, in the book I also talk about ways that researchers are working to switch those tags precisely to focus on them as well. But it tells us that it's all the more reason that enrichment projects, after-school projects, humanitarian projects are very important. They don't just affect the here and now. They're going to affect the world that the rest of um, our children and grandchildren inherit as well. So we're changing our own evolution. When we take drugs, uh, let's say Viagra, um, it means that uh, men can have offspring later, and that's great, but what they're finding is that for whatever reason, the offspring of older fathers um, tend to live longer. We don't know why. And they also tend to have more incidences of things like autism and schizophrenia. Uh, we're now able to begin to start 3D printing cartilage and uh, simple organs things like that. And in the book, I visit a man who's printing out um, 3D ears with live cells in the ink for children who are born with deformed ears. But if, And he's working on cartilage for the neck and the knee, and all of that is going into human trials very, very soon. But if you have people who are active longer and they know that they can have parts replaced, Will they become more reckless? I mean, there are a lot of questions that are going to crop up, a lot of ethical questions very soon that will have to do with biomedical ethics, uh, eco-ethics, environmental ethics, um, robotic ethics, all the different ways in which we are changing the world around us faster then we can understand it or understand what the effects of those changes are going to be. And that understanding is crucial, isn't it? it even if at a, that accelerated rate, if we don't understand it, we, we, we can't act in the appropriate way. That's part of the reason that I wrote the book, because we need to wake up to what is happening uh, on all the changes that are taking place, not all for the bad by any means. Um, we've done a lot of good things also. Uh, in our time here, but we need to just pay attention to what we are doing and what we are capable of doing and make sure that we have the kind of oversight we, we need. And I don't just mean government oversight. Um, actually, colleges and universities are a great place to ha be having the conversations uh, about the ethical effects of different things. For example, uh, we have this nanotechnology revolution that's been taking place. And it's possible now to coat things at the microscopic level with little silver particles that are antimicrobial. 
well, this sounds like a great plan to use in hospitals, um, in just clinics all over the world, different kinds of things. The only problem is if it can kill the bacteria there that, you know, produce MRSA and terrible things like that, can it also kill the bacteria we need? We understand now that there is very good bacteria in us, too, that does a lot of things for the body that we could not do by ourselves. So we need a certain amount of bacteria. And in famine-stricken areas where twins have been looked at um, and the one has survived and the other has not, uh, the studies have been showing that it has to do with the bacteria in the stomach. So everything in nature is interwoven with everything else. And this goes back to what we were talking about before. We used to think we were separate from nature. Now we're starting to understand that it is all very intricately interwoven. And when you touch it in one place, it can have reverberations in other places. And so we need to pay attention. We need to learn more about what we're doing and figure out what some of the effects are going to be and make sure that we're traveling down the right directions. Uh, as you're talking about all these incredible things, uh, definitely there's a sense of wonder, and I think you, you approach these things from that sense of wonder, what we're capable of. But as you talk about everything being interwoven, um, and you get kind of a butterfly effect sense, um, I don't know, you some people might tend toward paralysis. Like there, you know, there's 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 so much that I, that I do that affects everything else. So I'm just going to retreat back into myself. No, I think the better way to look at it is there's so much that affects everything else. What can I do positively? So, for example, um, if just uh, the people listening now at home, you can bike instead of drive. You can recycle and reuse. If you can afford it, you can switch to solar and wind, which are becoming as affordable, are as affordable now, as uh, fossil fuels. You can use public transportation more. Uh, You can choose your car wisely. You can volunteer to plant trees to help with wildlife corridors. Uh, You can can get involved at so many different levels. A big thing is to buy food locally, preferably in urban farms, but locally if you don't have them there. And that's because at the moment, the trucks that are bringing the, the produce and foods in from all over to the big cities travel great distances, and they use up a lot of fossil fuels. And also a lot of preservatives are then needed. That, that isn't necessary. Food can be grown locally, and there are urban farms cropping up in the megacities all over the world. Um, In Salt Lake City, you have a uh, planted roof to your library, and you have beehives on top of your library. There are things like that happening, and people can take part in them. Um, When I was in San Francisco, I saw signs up everywhere listing when people were going to be getting together for the cleaning of the various water areas and for the uh, restoration 
of um, the different growing areas. And so there, people are not helpless. That's what's depressing, when you feel helpless, that there's nothing you can do. When you realize that there are endless things you can do and that they do make a difference, then you don't feel that kind of depression. But another important thing is, uh, of course, to just to teach your children that individuals can make a difference and that this is precisely the time that we need people to speak up, to get involved, to vote, and to not lose hope. You know, it was Mahatma Gandhi who said, become the change you wish to see in the world. This is the first time in human history that we've been able to work together like this globally to ensure a healthy planet. And that we can do that now is absolutely astonishing. We've become a marvel. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Diane Ackerman. Her latest book is The Human Age. And uh, you're welcome to join us. We have about 10 minutes left uh, with her. 1-800-826-1495, upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at uh, Utah Public Radio. And we do have uh, a couple of uh, questions, comments uh, in uh, on email. Uh, this, uh, this one is from Steve. He says, it's not the least among us, referring to... Uh, uh, about 10 minutes ago, I think, in our conversation. But those with the most who are doing the most harm to the planet, isn't it? For instance, isn't the United States the largest emitter of greenhouse gases? Much of Europe is on its way to shifting from fossil fuels to renewables. But here in the United States, we're dumping more carbon into the atmosphere than ever. This makes me despair. And if your guest has reason for hopefulness, I'm eager to hear it, says Steve. Yeah, he's absolutely right. Um, It is disgraceful that we're not doing more. However... Uh, This is precisely the time to to get out and protest uh, and let your um, representatives know that you are against the XL pipeline, for instance. Get behind the EPA, which has announced that it is uh, going to cap emissions uh, and also tax carbon, the idea of taxing carbon, uh, which now I think it's almost 100 uh, governments, excuse me, and a thousand businesses and so on around the world have gotten together on. The reason is not to punish the big carbon users, it's to persuade them to switch to renewables. Um, This is something that is happening and must continue to happen. Uh, And when we think of, like, the population crisis, there are so many people all over the world, it's not just that we have to have fewer offspring It's also that we in the United States especially use more resources than people do elsewhere in the world. So this is where uh, recycling, sustainability, and so on becomes so much important. And California is leading the way. They have passed a law that all houses uh, that are being built have to be uh, net zero, as it's called. They have to give off more energy than... Uh, they use. That has to happen by 2015. Um, That's really soon. I'm sorry, by 2020. That's very soon. And uh, businesses by 2030. And they are also uh, leading the way in a lot of other sustainability projects. So has it happened overnight? Is it going to happen overnight? Nope. We're going to have to keep working on it. Can it happen? Oh, absolutely. We have already seen big changes. Um, The UN, again, panel on climate change recently announced just a couple of weeks ago that 
in testing the air, it's less polluted, less toxic than in the 1990s. It needs to be a lot better. But at least we're starting to wake up slowly, realize what's happening, and start changing it. And that's what we need to continue doing at an even faster pace, and everyone can play a role, however small. Uh, Steve wrote back in a little bit later. He, he uh, Just one word with an exclamation point. Epigenetics. <laughs> and uh, I agree with Ep- you, Steve. It, it's a fascinating topic. You, you referenced it, uh, Don Ackerman, just a little bit ago, that this, this idea that the traits within your lifetime can be heritable. And, you, and you, I wonder if you talk a little bit more about that and the, the fact you've talked to scientists who are, who are trying to narrow in on, on these, these traits. Epigenetics is one of the great discoveries of uh, our era. And very few people know about it. It's just coming to the forefront now. But we know, for instance, that if you grow up, let's choose a a city like Beijing, horrible pollution. It not only affects those people and gives them a lot of illnesses, and this is why China is waking up to the fact that it has to clean up its act. Um, the, The DNA gets tagged. The DNA doesn't tell the whole story. The microbiome that I was talking about tells part of the story, and the epigenetics also. That is, the little switches that either tell a gene to turn on or turn off. And for whatever reason, uh, right before puberty, we are most vulnerable to this. And if you have been suffering horrible violence, stress, famine, um, pollution, different things like that, it tags the gene because this is evolution's way of uh, telling future generations about the environment that they have to adapt to. So it tags the gene, and then when that person grows up and has children, the children inherit that gene, and they can inherit the diabetes or the cancer or whatever it is, and that gets passed on down. But we are starting to understand what some of those genes are and uh, pinpoint them. And uh, they're finding that this is the case even in research labs where they look at animals that are very affectionate motherers uh, with their offspring as opposed to not. So now we know that when you're pregnant, what you eat matters, how you are with your children matters, and not just for them. It matters for other generations, too. So uh, this is why when I was saying earlier, we need to take special care of the poorest among us because it isn't just what they experience now in their lifetime. We need to be thinking about the future world that they are going to inherit and that our own children are going to inherit also. And we want all of that to be as good as possible. But it's a fascinating field, and it is not a fatalistic thing, because we are learning how to flip the switches and uh, cure diseases and so on by doing that. Uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of fascinating things. A lot of this you'll have to go and read the book. It's The Human Age, The World Shaped by Us, Diane Ackerman. We didn't even get to the... Uh um, the uh, project in Sweden where they're using uh, body heat to, to uh, light up a building. <laughs> so that you'll have to read the book. We're out of time here. Uh, Diane yes. Ackerman, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. People can reach me at Twitter at Diane S. Ackerman 
or at my website, dianeackerman.com. All right. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, coming up tomorrow, we have a conversation with uh, retired uh, Army Lieutenant uh, General Russell Honore. He became famous during Hurricane Katrina. He talks about emergency preparedness. We'll talk about other things as well. Hope you join us tomorrow. Thanks for joining us today for Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Research and Graduate Studies presenting TEDxUSU 2014 Friction, featuring Orson Scott Card, an independently organized TED event held on Wednesday, October 29th. Ticket information available online beginning October 15th at tedx.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Alumni Association hosting the annual homecoming breakfast to honor Grand Marshal Dale Mildenberger and others. Saturday, October 11th. Details at usu.edu slash homecoming. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open Monday through Friday until 3 p.m. A wholesale retail company dedicated to crafting a selection of artisan breads and pastries using old-world techniques of preparation and baking. Information at crumbbrothers.com. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.